Father, we come to you today, again, very conscious of our need for grace, of our need for your Son to be um, the author and finisher of our faith. And so we, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together to once again look at what Scripture says about the nature of man before a holy God and the desperate need that we have for a Savior. We pray that our hearts are um, again driven to the beauty and sufficiency of Jesus and what He has done. And when He said, it is finished, He meant it. We thank you for the comfort that we can, that we can glean from that, given where your revealed word tells us we would be without the grace of Christ in our lives. And so we pray that we get a little more appreciation of the good news by looking at the bad news. And so uh, would you help us uh, with open eyes, open ears, and open hearts this morning as we come to a topic of um, total inability and discuss what it means in light of your word. We thank you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So last week we did a, a brief overview of the history of the debate over the nature of man and the need for the sovereign work of God in the heart. We talked about, we used big words, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and Arminianism. That is the, uh, with an I, not an E, not the country, it's a, it's a doctrine, Arminianism. And we saw that each of these modes of thought move the ball from, Pelagius being the extreme on, on the left, because, you know, the, the wise man's heart inclines to the right, so I'm going to go left to write with us. Left uh, uh, would be our uh, Pelagianism, where there's an absolute freedom of the will. We're born morally neutral. Um, we hold good and evil in our hands, and we are completely at um, equal balance to choose one or the other. It's just our choice that makes the difference with whether or not we can follow the good example that Jesus gave by sacrificing himself, or we don't follow the good example that Jesus gave, sacrificing himself, and then we, rem and then we are condemned for those equally, neutrally, tabula rasa choices. All right, so Pelagianism destroyed by Augustine in, um, in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the, five, the four and five hundreds. All right, so then we have semi-Pelagianism, which, you know, it's moving from left to right. So that state is... Semi-Pelagians would argue that there is, yeah, we're, we're kind of messed up, but we have an island of righteousness that is unaffected by the fall that, from which we can still choose good or evil without the assistance of the grace of God. And God's grace may restrain us a little bit in our sin, um, but we, we still can give to God from our awesomely awesome faith um, this, this uh, island of righteousness to, to trust Christ. Uh, which was also condemned as heresy. and uh, We read some from the Council of Orange last week on that. The third, Arminianism, which I would argue is within the pale of orthodoxy, and I think most Calvinists would. Um, but it still says that the will is corrupt, but God brings the sinner to a point of neutrality through what's called prevenient grace. Um, Augustine used that term, prevenient grace, to talk about the restraining hand of God on the sinful heart. Uh, Arminians use prevenient grace to say, no, the Holy Spirit comes in and, and, and overcomes the bondage of the will to bring you to a point of neutrality to where then you can 
through your awesomely awesome faith, um, choose God. That's kind of a, a very 10,000 foot overview of those three systems of thought. But what does scripture teach about the heart of man from birth? If we inherit both the nature and guilt of Adam through original sin, and from that nature springs actual sins, how bad is it? Um, how sinful is this fallen nature? Is man basically good with, uh, with some weaknesses, evil with some good? I mean, is that what Scripture teaches about us? Um, lest it be said that uh, we're about to discuss a, a system that began with John Calvin, um, I want to give you a, a few statements made by guys who are considered church fathers. Have you ever heard of Ignatius? Not the youth pastor video that goes around, but Ignatius, the, the, the church father from, from 110 AD. He said this, They that are carnal cannot do the things that are spiritual, nor can the unbelievers do the things of belief. It's an ability issue. They cannot. Romans 8-7 comes to mind. We'll get to that a little bit later. Um, this, is from, uh, this is from Justin Martyr. Uh, AD 150 says mankind by Adam fell under death and the deception of the serpent we are born sinners no good thing dwells in us for neither by nature nor by human understanding is it possible for me to acquire the knowledge of things so great and so divine but by the energy or the power uh, of the divine spirit of ourselves it is impossible to enter the kingdom of God he has convicted us of the impossibility of our nature to obtain life. Free will has destroyed us. This is AD 150. Free will has destroyed us. We who were free are become slaves and for our sin are sold. Being pressed down by our sins, we cannot move upward toward, toward God. We are like birds who have wings but are unable to fly. Just a martyr. And then, of course, Eusebius says, the liberty of our will in choosing things that are good is destroyed. All right, so when we talk about the will of man, the heart of man, the depth of sin that has corrupted humanity, the big term that everybody likes to use is total depravity, or some call total inability. And I think we're trying to pigeonhole that in so we get the flower metaphor going there. Total depravity, what does that mean? By total depravity or total inability, we mean mainly that the very nature of man has been so affected by original sin that every part of his being is affected by evil. In other words, there's not a single part of man that has not been fatally infected by sin. And the biblical understanding of this, and yes, I will load it with the biblical understanding of this, is that it affects everyone. And we see this in Romans. For all have sinned, all means all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Um, Psalm 143.2 says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Pelagius argued that it was possible for someone from birth to make good choices and to be righteous before God. Semi-Pelagians say, There is an island of righteousness where it is possible for someone apart from the grace of God to live righteously. That's not what the psalmist says. All people are worse than they think, and definitely worse than they want to admit. What psalm was that? Uh, psalm one forty three two. Uh, only God knows how far the depth of our sin really is. 
Only God knows. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But Disney and all the beautiful people of Hollywood will tell you to follow your heart, right? And you're welcome. Um, but the depravity which infects all mankind is the same depravity, the same nature that afflicts, affects, and is born of uh, Satan and the demons. I mean, Jesus said, you're of your father the devil, and you seek to do by nature what your father the devil wants you to do, right? Um, theologian Henry Mann said that there's enough evil in the heart of even the best of sinners to make another devil. It's from the same nature. That's the point of it. It's not something different. We're not categorically different in that way from Satan and, and, and demons. When we're born, we're born in rebellion. And it affects everything. It affects our bodies. <clears throat> I'm feeling that particularly this morning. It affects our bodies, our emotions, our minds, our consciences, our wills. Our bodies are not free from sin. At the fall, you know, Adam and Eve were made perfect, or thereabouts. Their bodies were immortal. They weren't sick. At the fall, there was a radical change, such that they felt like they needed to cover up. Something happened. They knew that they were dead. They knew that they were dying physically. Um... The wages of sin is death. Is that what, what we're told? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. But even more than the mortality and sickness that we feel because of the fall, the, de the, the depravity of health that we have, is that our bodies desire to become instruments of sin, of unrighteousness. It's the senses that input and don't filter temptation that comes into me. I mean, I, if I see something, my response as, as a pagan is to, is to sin with it. Even baby... No, I'm kidding. Uh, all of us have this thing where we, where we have what comes in becomes... And, and, every, and we're immediately defaulting to sexual stuff because that's just the most obvious one. But it's other things. Other things of, of greed, pride. I'm thinking of our kids when they were even very young babies. We never had to teach them to do wrong things. Right. I mean, they, correct. They, they always, I mean, you, you would have, you know, uh, Emma as a 10-month-old try to get the little door stopper, and I would move her across the room and tell her no. She would look at me, look at the door stopper, and try to call as fast as she could to get to the door stopper. Yeah. Yeah. From the senses, she inputs, there's a door stopper. Mom told me not to. And so my body naturally, because it's our bodies that are used. I mean. You would not know sin but for the law. But for the, yeah, but for the law. And so mom lays down the law, don't touch the door stopper. And it awoke. And it, she, she got woke. She was awakened. <laughs> to, <laughs> I want that door stopper even more. Uh, we sin with our bodies. Our very bodies bear the selfish effects of sin which cause the senses to receive temptation and stir us up to sin. Paul talks about that our bodies are, uh, that sin is in the members of our body. You know, in, 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 uh, in, uh, in Romans 7, 
Only Christ had no sin, therefore only Christ had a perfect body. All right, so our bodies are not free from sin. Our emotions are not free from sin. Sin has also infected our emotions, feelings, and affections. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.12 that we take pleasure in unrighteousness. It brings delight. Sin brings delight to us. Um, emotions can be good. They were good in Adam and Eve. Uh, before the fall. And there are ways that Christians, and we may, we may say, take a separate topic on this, there are ways that Christians uh, use emotions or have emotions that are right uh, after regeneration. But in our fallen nature, <coughs> sin has permeated all of our emotions. That's why Christians should not trust their feelings, uh, contrary to Ben Kenobi's advice. Uh, we can't trust our feelings. I thought Christianity was experiential, is it not? It is. <laughs> it is experiential. No, but, we can't, but we can't rely on what we feel. Right. It's not only, yeah. yeah Christ is redeeming our emotions. Right. Just like He's redeeming, that's why we have, and we'll get to it in a minute, He's also redeeming our minds. That's why we put our heads through the sieve of Scripture. We're washing with the water of the Word. But feelings can be deceitful. And, uh, and they've also been infected by the fall. So, so our bodies are not free from sin. Our emotions are not free from sin. Uh, total depravity includes that our minds are not free from sin. Titus 1.15, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Uh, Ephesians 4 gives us kind of a dark catalog of human uh, sin, specifically of the mind where Paul describes un unregenerate man as darkened in their understanding, the, the ignorance that is within them, and he contrasts that to the mind of Christ. The very thoughts of man come from a sinful well. And sin is irrational. Turn on the news. It's irrational. Uh, you see a clear display of that in the culture today. Our thoughts are not consistent. They, they seek to twist, and the logic seeks to twist and justify our rebellion against God. We, we want to do these things, and so we use our minds, our reason, to justify them. We love our rebellion, and we'll go around our elbows to get to our thumbs to justify our rebellion. We actually call evil good. That is, a, that is a expression of another testimony to the depths of the depraved mind. By nature, man does not and cannot understand spiritual truth. We see this in Romans 3, 11. No one understands, no one seeks for God, which kind of shoots a hole in the whole seeker-sensitive church, right? If we're not naturally seeking God, what are we building churches around that model for for people who naturally seek God? Um, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Notice the language of ability there. He's not able to understand. Uh, Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, 
but its end is the way to death. He's worked it out in his head. This looks like a good idea, but in the end of it, it's death. Uh, Jeremiah 4.22, For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. It's not kind language there. I mean, they have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. Man is ignorant of spiritual truth, but wise to sin. We invent new ways to sin. Our culture is inventing new ways to sin. Um, all right. Romans 1 gives a, a penetrating uh, view of this uh, analysis of this whole thing. We use the term in, in, in reform circles, noetic effects of sin. You may have heard that, the noetic effects of sin. Um, men know that God exists, but suppress that knowledge of the truth. That comes from Romans 1, right? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's Romans 1.18. So our bodies are not free from sin. Our um, emotions are not free from sin. Our minds are not free from sin. And our consciences are not free from sin. God gave man an inborn sense of his existence and an inborn sense of what is right and wrong, and we fight it. We're born fighting that. Sin has affected even this gift of what's right and what's wrong. Um, and we've looked at Titus 1.15 already. Both their minds and consciences are defiled. The author of Hebrews, <coughs> Apollos, says that the work of Christ is a cleansing of the effects of the fall on our conscious, consciences. Uh, he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Our 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 consciences are not pure. They need to be purified by the work of Christ. Uh, Hebrews, uh, that's Hebrews 9.14. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's the effect of a depraved conscience? Why does that matter? Well, we find it very easy to justify our sin, Right? Uh, Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Even though our consciences have been affected by sin, they haven't been totally destroyed. We still bear the image of God. We know what's right and what's wrong, but we cannot, um, we cannot work in that because we're suppressing it to justify our own sin. So our bodies, our emotions, our minds, our consciences are not free from sin. Our wills are not free from sin. A lot of non-Calvinists agree that, um, that sin affects man, but they deny that sin has affected the will. That's kind of the, the last bastion of hope that a non-Calvinist has. They de the sin has not completely affected the will. And by will... We mean the ability to choose, right? Uh, despite the, uh, despite the, the objections, we don't believe that men are robots. We believe that men are made in the image of God, that we do make choices, that we have a will that makes choices, and we do what we most love to do. The problem is, what we most love to do is rebel against God. 
is rebel against our Creator. So we see that our wills have been so affected by sin that they are no longer capable of making the right choice. Scripture describes the will as a hard rock. We've seen this in Ezekiel eleven nineteen, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Scripture tells us that our wills are stubborn in our rebellion against God. Um, in speaking to Israel in Psalm uh, 78, uh, he says, And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So sin is not only what we say or do, but why we say or do anything. It's the motivations behind it. What's the will doing? The will of man is dominated by his sinful nature. So since the nature is evil, the bad well gives bad water, then the will is evil. The nature is evil, so the will is evil. We are free to do what we most love to do at any time. And we sin because we want to. Proverbs 21.10. And I'm really pounding on the scriptures for these. And I, I do plan on giving you a list of these. I'll send it out by email. It just seemed like it would save a lot more copy costs. Uh, I'll send that to you uh, later, the, the scriptural references I'm using here. But Proverbs 21.10 says, The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. Uh, Romans 8.7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God. Indeed, it cannot. There's ability there. There is a, a, a recognition that it's not that, that we just don't want to. We can't. I think Philip gives a great example of this. He's done it for, uh, from the pulpit. He was watching, um, I think it was one of those leopards eat gazelle kind of shows or whatever, which are always a lot of fun. Um, but he, he, there was a scene in there where a lioness was in the middle of, midst of a famine. There wasn't any, any, any food for her to eat, and she was resting under a fruit tree, and there's fruit all around. She's starving. There's fruit all around, but she won't eat the fruit and live because it's not in her nature to eat the fruit and live. She needs meat. That's uh, one of those things where I think Madagascar got it right. You know, the lion needed Fish was kind of the way to do that and not make it painful for everybody else. But the nature of the lion is one that needs meat. The nature of the human being starts with the desire to rebel against God. We can't, can the leopard change his spots? Jeremiah asked, no. We have in us a nature that needs to rebel. That's by nature. And what does that point to? Our need for recreation. What are the... And we'll get to this when we get to irresistible grace. What are the, what are the um, analogies that the Scripture uses for, for conversion? It doesn't say right choice. It says new birth. Uh, life to death. A resurrection is involved. A new creation. Those are the terms that the, that the writers of the New Testament use when they're talking about conversion. And each of those, you don't have... A baby in the womb, or even before conception, you don't have, I, I want to be born, I want to be born, I want to be born. That is something done to the baby. Leave that to you to figure that out. That is something done to the baby. New creation. 
the existence, the void of, of the universe. The Spirit hovered over the deep. And it wasn't like out in, the, out in the nether, there's a creation, I want to be created, I want to be created. No, that's something done to the creation, brought out of nothing. Um, resurrection. Lazarus was not in the tomb going, I want to raise up, I want to raise up. Nobody can raise themselves from the dead, except one. Right? We're, our nature is dead. Our nature is, is, needs to be recreated. Our nature needs to be reborn. That's why the language of the New Testament uses those kinds of terms. It is a sovereign act. of It has to be a sovereign act of God. For the mind is set on the flesh, is hostile to God. That's the nature. Just wants meat. We enjoy sin. We love it. So we from birth choose it every time. We're not sinners because we sin. You've heard this. We sin because we're sinners. And Martin Luther says it this way. I love this. Let all the free will in the world do all it can with all its strength. It will never give rise to a single instance of ability to avoid being hardened if God does not give the Spirit, or of meriting mercy if it is left to its own strength. And that's from Bondage of the Will, which I highly recommend you read. Charles Spurgeon said this, We declare on scriptural authority that the human will is so desperately set on mischief so depraved, so inclined to everything that is evil, and so disinclined to everything that is good, that without the powerful, the powerful, supernatural, irresistible influence of the Holy Spirit, no human will will ever be constrained toward Christ. Well, that's pretty desperate. Um, but is it all the time? I mean, certainly there are times when people who are unregenerate do good things. Um, Bill Gates goes and builds an orphanage in Africa. That's a good thing, right? We, yes. yes, that's a good thing. But is it a, something born of faith? <laughs> no. Well, not, I'm, I'm judging his heart. I don't know where he is. I assume it's not. Um, does Christianity influence the culture that people acknowledge that these things are good? Well, what are the intentions of the art, though? I mean, the, the uh, goodness that he's looking to do is it for legacy? Is it yeah. to build his name? Yeah. Or is it to, and I, that's where God. What's the motivation? Reveal the truth. That's you're, right. You're also encountering what, what a growing uh, counterfeit culture is. It mimics the church, but it's not the church. Right. Yeah. It does a lot of really good things, sure. but it denies Christ. Yeah. Uh, atheists will, will go to the boys' home. Right. Uh, uh, Buddhists will, will uh, feed people in the street. Um, Muslims will, will feed the poor, will build houses, will do those relief effort kind of things. Is it born from faith in Christ? Because what Paul says is, whatever is not of faith is sin, right? Um, depravity is total. It extends to every facet of the human being, body, um, emotions, will, conscience. It extends to every bit of that. But is it all the time? I mean, surely there's got to be some moment in time where even an unregenerate person does something that's well, that's good. God looks down from heaven and says, well, that surprises me. That's good. 
What does Scripture say? From the beginning, Genesis 6-5, and we saw this within our first year of doing this class. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice the three words there. Um, every, kind of big word, absolute word, every, not most or some, most of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Uh, there is a only, not occasionally, not usually. And then there's that big word, continually, not at certain times after the age of accountability. It's continually. Moses is not describing acts only, but intentions and motives of the heart. And this is where we get to. It's stuff that looks horizontally good doesn't take into account what vertically it's doing. Look at the orphanage I built. I must be a good person. Look how much I donate to the government in taxes. <laughs> I must be a good person. Look, I sawed off the end of my gun because, you know, I must be a good person. No man outside of Christ has ever had a single righteous motive. No man outside of Christ has ever had a single righteous motive. Our hearts are bent toward pride. They're bent toward selfishness continually, even if on the outside what we do may look good. It may look extremely good, but if it's done for self and not trusting in Christ, it is sin. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink, even eating or drinking, very basic, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Why? Because when you don't, it's sinning against God. Uh, Romans 14.23, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because he's eating not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And then, of course, Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. What does that mean? By nature, deserving judgment. Condemned already, by nature. Like the rest of mankind, it's not like he said, okay, these are the elect, and so they're not going to be affected by this. All of us were affected by the fall. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. You see the contrast there. We were dead, Christ made us alive. We can't make ourselves alive. Uh, those who remain in this nature are deserving of eternal punishment and will pay it. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8-9 In flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of God and from the glory of His might. I don't like to think about that. It's condemned based on nature because... The desire and intention of the heart is only evil continually. It's based on nature. We're born children of wrath. Eternal punishment does not cause us joy, but God is holy and righteous. He will not tolerate sin. And so we are, to paraphrase Calvin's statement, we're sin factories. 
I did a study one time on if we were to mathematically compute the eternal judgments, the number of eternal judgments per sin, <laughs> it was a little overwhelming. It'd keep you up at night and give you a nosebleed. Because James says in James 2, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Why? Because God set up these arbitrary rules, and if you violate them, He's going to get you. No. It's because He created us to be image bearers. And he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. It's based on his nature, his character, that's the standard. Who is God and who am I before him? All right. So total depravity means that apart from the enabling grace from God, our hardness and rebellion against God is total. Doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. I think that's where prevenient grace comes in. If we're going to use that term, that's where I'd like to use it. It restrains the heart from doing, being as bad as we can be. Everything we do in this rebellion is sin. We are totally unable to submit to God or reform ourselves. We are totally deserving of eternal punishment. That's the doctrine of total depravity in a nutshell. There it is. Sin has afflicted and infected and, uh, and perverted our bodies, our wills, our emotions, our consciences. And it's hard to exaggerate how desperate we are from birth. We need a Savior. We cannot and we will not save ourselves. So this is the downer lesson. This bad news, right? Why would we study this? What comfort do we have in this? Here's the comfort. This is Martin Luther who struggled a lot with, I'm going to face God and I don't know how I'm going to do that. Right? He says this, I frankly confess that for myself, even if it could be, I should not want free will to be given me nor anything to be left in my own hands to enable me to endeavor after salvation. Not merely because in face of so many dangers and adversities and assaults of devils, I could not stand my ground, but because even were there no dangers, I should still be forced to labor with no guarantee of success. But now that God has taken my salvation out of the control of my own will and put it under the control of His and promised to save me not according to my working or running, but according to His own grace and mercy, I have the comfortable certainty that He is faithful and will not lie to me. And that he is also great and powerful, so that no devils or opposition can break him or pluck me from him. Furthermore, I have the comfortable certainty that I please God, not by reason of the merit of my works, but by reason of his merciful favor promised to me. So that if I work too little or badly, he does not impute it to me, but with fatherly compassion pardons me and makes me better. This is the glorying of all the saints and their God. And that's Martin Luther, bondage of the will. I love this doctrine, not because it makes me feel good, because I shouldn't trust my feelings anyway, but because it drives me to the cross, which is where it should. If I were able to, in my own will, I'll, I would totally agree. This is what drove me to this whole thing. And, I, and we've talked about this before. I've gone, 
How, what confidence can I have that I will remain in Christ? Unless he's the author and the finisher of it, unless the news is so bad that my will is so corrupt that there's no chance, I have to depend on the mercy of God. I have to trust uh, that he's giving me the ability to trust. What else would I, where else would I go? That's why this is an important thing. You don't know the good news until you know the bad news, right? And Scripture is very clear on this. You can't appreciate the good news. You can't appreciate the good news. Maybe that's a better, better way to say it. You might hear it all you want. Yeah. Because I didn't grow up believing this doctrine. I mean, I grew up Baptist, very traditional Baptist. But, mm. but I, I had a very, uh, a very strong pride in me when I looked at others who weren't following Christ, right. that I I chose the right way, and they're they're making bad choices. What's wrong with them? Right. And that there was very much the Pharisaical pride mm. in me yeah. for for having chosen yeah. to do the right thing. Yeah, it's your gift to God. Your good choices. He's so appreciative of our good choices, <laughs> and and I and I had the same the same. Early on, until I realized, you know, in college, how much I wrecked it. Um, and the, the flip side of that is the the free church buddy Christ. Like you, you get the, I believe now I can do whatever I want mm. kind of thing. And, yeah. and that's that's what again I come from the other side of the track, so I experience this every Sunday. But it's uh, just go around the room talking about what does this first mean to you. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. <laughs> no bearing whatsoever. I don't care what it means to you. I want to know what the author meant. So, right. I was just thinking. Um, That's a mind depravity so thing. Say a person isn't totally depraved, and it's basically just based on how good the preaching is or the presentation is of the gospel for them to like decide. Oh, well, you know, you're right. I will choose to follow Christ mm. or whatever. But so say. I mean, there's just so many different aspects you have to think of, but one is revelation. Um, so how do we know God? Mm-hmm. And like it's through Scripture. Well, how is Scripture given to us? Well, it was through God um, speaking to Israel and, you know, all through the line. But like, so that's how we know God is because He de- He came down and spoke to us. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so the preacher wouldn't know the first word to say about the gospel if it wasn't for God bringing the gospel to us in the first place. Mm-hmm. So it's like you can't separate... God's sovereignty in any way. If he doesn't work, we're lost. Yeah. If he doesn't initiate, we're lost. Even even in revealing the scripture, what is the gospel? I don't get the cross or or the, the effects of the atonement by a, a rooster crowing in the morning. I mean, not to mention you didn't exist before he made you. Well, there is that. It's fundamental. Get your own dirt kind of argument. Um but yeah, I mean, everything is derivative of God's initiation. Uh, and Scripture reveals that this is as well, because it has to be. We are so gone. The ability, the want to, the cannot is there with us. A couple of books, and then we'll, we'll close it out. Um, okay, for next week, what I would like to do is take, this is the affirmative presentation of my, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever it was, of what total depravity is. Of course, obviously, this is just an overview. I, I highly recommend that you, you read more things. And one of the things I'd like for you to read is Bonjour Will by Martin Luther. Not only is it a great 
um, exposition of scripture against the, the free will movement of Erasmus. He wrote this thing called the diatribe, which I don't know why they would call it that these days. It has a little bit negative connotation. But, but he wrote it uh, in response to Erasmus. He wrote one response. Erasmus wrote three, and Luther said, I'm not, I've done everything I'm going to do in this. It's destroyed him. He can't do any more, so whatever. Let him keep writing. It's, this still stands. It's a great re refutation of that whole free will, semi-Pelagian uh, thing. And it's just amazing how caustic Luther is. I, I have a black heart. We talked about it just now. I love hearing Luther go against nonsense. He's just a very, he's a great. All right, so the other one is um, Chosen by God, R.C. Sproul, obviously a good one. Another sister, brother, I don't know, pair book to this would be uh, The Holiness of God, because it gets to this. Chosen by God gets to election of why we need it, and it deals with some of total depravity. The holiness of God really gets into the nature and character of God and in light of, of who we are. And then finally, this little pamphlet written by Joe Thorne. I really like this. I like the way Thorne writes. He's, a, he's very pastoral in how he approaches things, and he's got some really cool tattoos. So um, this is called The Heart of the Church. It is a, it is a one of three. Uh, it's good. It's a good book, um, and it goes through um, the gospel and what we believe in, and, and those kinds of things in a very pastoral way, so I like those. Next week, what I'd like to do is take up the objections to this doctrine. I want to uh, I want to pull from their side. What are the arguments that are made by those who are not Calvinists, and 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 the the idea of prevenient grace, the idea of there's an island of right, there's some kind of ability in the will of man to to make a choice. God wouldn't make us, you know, He's not going to violate our free will, kind of thing. We, we'd have to take that one step when He takes nine, all that kind of stuff. We're going to deal with the objections to that, and one of the primary objections to it, and Luther deals with it in a great way, and we'll go through that next week. It, hopefully, Lord willing, the crick don't rise. Um, the, the oughts in Scripture. Set before you today is life and death. Therefore, choose life. It's a command. It's an imperative. Well, would God tell us to do something that we can't do? What, what, kind, of, what kind of trickery is that? The God's, you know, bait and switch. Choose it. Oh, I know you can't. You know, when you sit back. No. What's the response to that? Uh, and there are others that we'll go through. So we're going to go through a series of objections uh, to total depravity and talk about what they are and try to give them a fair hearing as much as I can because I know that in my flesh there is no good thing. Um, I'll try to be fair as much as I can. Call me on the carpet if you don't think I'm being fair. And then we'll respond to that. We'll see, look at the responses to that. So those are, that's kind of where I want to go. And that's kind of what I want to do with each of these. So it may be longer than seven weeks because we're five. So we're looking at ten just on the five. And then I want to do some stuff after that. So it may be a while. Can you email that to us? The what? Scriptural. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'll, I'll, I'll set up a handout with the scripture references and, uh, and we'll go through there. Yeah. So Yes, sir. A, can you throw a bibliography on there? Yeah, I'll throw a bibliography on there. So, uh, after we're saved, um, are, we, are we still totally depraved? Ah, good question. So, one of the things that I like to do when I'm talking about this stuff is, is do it timely, um, is, uh, is, is talk about how free are we in different stages? 
are we freer? I mean, because in glory, it says we'll only be obedient to Christ, right? Our redeemed bodies, our redeemed emotions, our redeemed, ultimately will be completely conformed to His image so that we will obey always. Are we more free now or are we more free then in biblical terms? Are we more free now than the holy angels who obey God? Or will we be more free then when we are conformed to His image? So what is freedom? So I think that, uh, in my view, is that when you are redeemed in Christ, you are more free than you were when you were not redeemed, right? For freedom, Christ has set us free. So don't go back to the sin, the yoke of bondage, right? So, so we're freer now to sin or not. But we're also free in that when we sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So there's freedom there. There's freedom. It's training ground for being obedient. And we're continually being conformed to His image. So we're gradually getting, if, if the thing is working right, we're doing this, but we're going up toward the image of Christ. So that, yes, I think that we're still wrestling with the innate nature uh, that we're born with, the, the sin. We're not going to be perfected. I still sin. I did it at um, 6 o'clock this morning. Uh, and and that's, that's the one I know about, you know. Um, so... That, that's going to continually happen. And I'm gonna, what does that do to me? That drives me toward the obedience of repentance. It drives me toward the obedience of confession of my sin to Tammy, who I generally sin against more than any other. Uh, it drives me to, uh, to my need for Jesus, which is where my heart needs to be. That is a, that is a restraint on my own residing. If we have a stony heart before we're saved, we have a lot of um, sediment <laughs> after we get the heart of flesh, right? We're still dealing with that corruption that's there. And so, but that's continuing to be hammered away. It's continuing to be swept away by the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. And it, and it looks really good sometimes, and it's a big colossal fail at others, but, but we're brought back. Like Peter, we're brought back because he's prayed for us, right? I, I've given you over to Satan that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, and when you return, encourage your brothers, right? I've gone through this. I failed bitterly, but how great is Jesus? Let me encourage you with how great Jesus is. That is that's the pattern of Christianity. It's different than what we're talking about here. Total depravity is, I don't care. I just want to rebel, right? It's a different, it's a different thing. Uh, we're... We're running really short on time. Our, our, our length of time has been really depraved. And we've <laughs> been de our deprived. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's a process. Right. That's a process. Sanctification. Not that I've made it my own, but I press on toward the apostolic. Very good. Yep, that's it. That's it. Very good. All right, well, I'm going to pray because, you know, again, I need him every hour, and I know you do too, so we'll pray. It's been said that a diamond's uh, beauty is displayed up against a black cloth most clearly. And there is no blacker cloth than the heart of man from birth. So God, we thank you that you display the beauty of the gospel set against the total depravity in the heart of man. And that you and your mercy saw fit to redeem rebels. What wondrous love is this? 
And so we thank you for your mercy. And we thank you that your mercies are renewed every morning. We're about to go to the table this morning. And we are so thankful that we can come to the table of Christ free, forgiven, and pressing forward. God, would you warm our hearts in that? Would you cause us to love you more, to love Christ above all other shiny objects nipping at our heels that would set themselves up as idols in our hearts? We want to love him, and we become what we love. So we thank you for the gift that we have of the body of Christ, the gift of Christ in the body, pressing us forward, calling us into account, encouraging us to move forward in our display of the beauties of the gospel of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you guys for being